beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3, gives this simple uh, description of Jesus' death. There it says, Christ was crucified in weakness. And indeed, that's what the cross of Christ is all about. Uh, Crucifixion is the ultimate moment of weakness, you could say. Uh, Soldiers took a hammer and some nails. They drove those nails through Jesus' hands and feet, fastening him to the cross. Then they erected the cross, raising him up for all to see. And there Christ hung, gasping for air. Everyone who wanted could come by and hurl their insults at him as he hung there in agony. Complete and utter weakness. And yet, with the eyes of faith, we can see a lot more. Christ's crucifixion was a moment of great weakness, but at the same time, it was also a moment of great power. In fact, maybe it was the most powerful act in all the world. And that's because it accomplished so much. See, by his death, our Lord Jesus, he accomplished greater things than any act of human strength ever could and ever will in this world. We hope to see some of those things this afternoon. We certainly can't uh, study all the things Christ achieved by his death. That would take far too long. And yet, by God's grace, we'll see the power of Christ's death in what we study from Scripture, and we pray that we will be renewed in our faith. So that brings us to the sermon theme, See the Power of Christ's Once-for-All Death on the Cross. We'll see that Christ's death, first of all, established a new covenant. Secondly, it, it, it enables us to live for God. And third, it ensures our entrance into eternal life. So first of all, we see that Christ's death established a new covenant. So as we look at the crucifixion of Christ, we see that Christ's death on the cross, it, it satisfied God's justice against our sins. You find that language in various places in the catechism. And we see the power of Christ's death already in that. What does God's justice require? Well, that our sins receive eternal punishment. What did Christ do? He absorbed that eternal punishment for us on the cross, taking it away. And he did it for all believers, not only for us who believe here, but throughout history, all believers. And that's the perfect power of Christ's sacrifice. Not only are your sins taken care of in Christ, but the sins of everyone who believes. It's amazing when you think about that, the sins of millions of people Uh, taken care of in Christ's death. And so God's justice was satisfied. This is what Lord's Day 16 is getting at. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, 
satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. And think of this in relation also to our our reading from Leviticus 4. There we read about the sin offering offered in ancient Israel. And when we look at that passage, what do we see? Well, we see an animal being sacrificed for sin. The priest would take a bull without blemish, he'd bring it to the tent of meeting, and he would lay his hand on the head of that bull. Uh, that, that demonstrated that the bull was dying in place of the people, and the priest killed the bull before the Lord. And when you read that chapter, you notice also the emphasis on blood. The priest took some of the blood into the tabernacle. He dipped his finger in the blood and sprinkled it seven times before the the veil, before the Lord. And then he wiped some of the blood on the horns of the incense altar. All the rest of the blood he poured out on the base of the altar of burnt offering. And then after that, we see the rest of the bull being subject to complete uh, destruction. Part of the bowl was burnt up on the altar, burnt offering. The rest of it was taken outside of the camp and burned up completely, turned into ash. It's certainly a, a violent and gory scene. must have been messy work to be a priest involved in all those animal sacrifices. And yet, why did God do that, institute that? What does it show us? It shows us something of God's justice against sin. His perfect justice. You see, the Lord is not bloodthirsty in any way. But as Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And as God says elsewhere in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. And so death must take place to satisfy God's justice against sin. And yet, of course, when we look at Leviticus 4, there was still a problem. Even with all the blood and death of those sin offerings, they lacked power. They could only make people ceremonially clean, uh, and they could not effectively remove sin. That's why they had to be offered again and again. But notice what Hebrews 9 emphasizes about Christ's death. It's a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Take verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood. Once for all. There's also 24 to 26. Christ has entered into heaven itself, not to offer himself uh, repeatedly, for then he would, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then there's also verse 28. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And that is the power of Christ's death on the cross. And we see it especially when we compare it to those Old Testament offerings. 
In the Old Testament, countless animals were slaughtered. Nearly endless gallons of blood were shed and and sprinkled. Carcass upon carcass was burned up, and yet it was powerless to take away sin. But the power of Christ's sacrifice is different. One sacrifice is given, and countless sinners are forgiven. One man's blood was shed, and millions upon millions are forever healed. One man's life was given over to death, so that innumerable people would be given eternal life. That is the power of Christ's death. One death, one Savior, saving all those who believe. And this is also why Christ's death had the power to establish the new covenant. You see, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it provided the basis for the fulfillment of all of God's promises, His covenant promises. You see, in His covenant, God promises eternal life to His people, His sinful people. And so the promise can only be fulfilled through the death of Christ. In his covenant, God promises forgiveness of sins to sinners. Again, it can only be fulfilled through the death of Christ. And we can go on with all of God's promises. It includes a promise of God's love, his care, his faithfulness towards us, and God's working all things together for the good of his people, God's promise of the renewal of our lives and and of our bodies, a glorified body. None of that is possible without the cross of Christ and his sacrifice. And that's what makes Christ the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 9 compares God's covenant uh, to a last will and testament. I'm sure many of you have made a last will and testament. A will, it gives binding directions about what should happen to, to your estate after, after you die. Now, Hebrews 9 provides a basic description of how a will works. Verses 16 and 17 uh, puts it like this. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And that's straightforward enough. Uh, You don't want to hand out the man's inheritance if he hasn't actually died yet. Not only is it illegal, but if he makes a miraculous recovery, we'll find out all his stuff is gone. And so, a will can only go in effect once someone has died. And that's why it was necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death. The new covenant, it's like that last will and testament, required the death of a person to come into effect. That's also why it was important for Christ to be buried. As as Lord say 16 puts it, his burial testified that he really physically died. And by virtue of that, like a, a last will and testament, the new covenant 
is now in effect through his death, and all the benefits that come to us to us through it. If you are in someone's will, once that person dies, you receive your share of the prescribed inheritance. That property now becomes yours. And it's similar to the death of Christ and the new covenant. As Hebrews 9 says, Therefore Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the old covenant. See, Christ's death has secured the promises of God toward us who believe. They are now in effect. Christ's death has secured an eternal redemption. Christ's death makes us share in the eternal inheritance. We can receive our share of the inheritance. That is the power of Christ's death. Brings us to our second point. So we see the power of Christ's sacrifice in that it satisfies God's justice against our sin. And finally, lasting forgiveness can be given through the cross. But the power of Christ's death does not end there. You see, Christ's sacrifice, it does not only free us from sin's punishment, but it also frees us from sin's power. And God is just as much interested in this for his children. You see, God, our Father, he cannot bear to see his children remain dead in sin. He will not allow sin and Satan to continue to enslave his beloved people. And think of the Old Testament book of Exodus. God not only saved his people from death, but he also freed them from their slavery. He did this not so that they could go live their own lives, living their own dreams apart from him, now he told Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might serve me. And that's what God wants. And this is where the death of Christ comes in again. Christ's death on the cross gets at the root of our problem. You see, sin is not just uh, something we slide into once in a while, and Christ's blood is just the antidote for the occasional slip-up. If that were the case, then Christ's sacrifice would be there merely for the times that we mess up. But other than that, conquering sin would be all up to us. Maybe we could follow some kind of program of ten easy steps to completely get rid of sin in our lives. But the problem of sin runs so much deeper than that. Sin is at the center of our old nature. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, my sinful nature. Right? Nothing good lives in my flesh, in my old sinful nature. 
So what does this mean, practically speaking, for our lives? It means that the power to change, the power to overcome sin and live new lives does not lie within us and in our own strength. What needs to happen is that our fundamental nature needs to change. And this is where the power of Christ's death comes in again. Christ's death gets at the root of a problem, the, the problem. It changes our very nature. It's, as Romans 6, verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And this is the very thing that question and answer 43 is getting at. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. And this is why even the most hardened sinner can be changed. Christ's death on the cross has the power to change anyone in this world. It doesn't matter who they are. Think of the Apostle Paul. He was once a blasphemer. He did all he could to persecute the church. But he was changed. He began to worship the triune God. He began to build Christ's church to help all the saints. That change did not come about through his own willpower. Think also of someone like John Newton, the one who composed the hymn Amazing Grace. At one point, he was a slave trader, committed horrible atrocities. But when God brought him to Christ, all of that changed. Instead of actively supporting the slave trade, he became a fierce abolitionist. The changes in their lives and in the lives of all believers is a testimony to the power of Christ's death on the cross. It gets at the root of our problem. Christ's death can change anyone. Again, even the most hardened sinner. He puts our old nature to death and gives us a new nature so that we might serve God. So what does that mean for you? It means that Christ's death is also powerful enough to also overcome your sin. It is. It is true that for believers, the struggle against sin can be very severe and difficult. We are not yet made perfect. Uh, We are not freed entirely from sin's presence in this life. And sinful desires will always be there until we uh, enter glory, and they still pull at us. And yet the power of Christ's death to overcome sin must not be minimized. And so there's no room for defeatism 
in the Christian life where we say, well, there's no use fighting this sin. I'll never get over it because it's just a part of me. No. Remember, faith comes first in the fight against sin. Remember and believe the power of Christ's death to change you, to change anyone. No, it's not uh, first I need to overcome this sin to conclude that my old self was crucified with Christ. That's putting it backwards. Faith comes first in the fight against sin, no matter how hard our struggle is right now. This means the reality is this. I believe that my old self was crucified with Christ despite my struggle, and through that, I can overcome sin by His help and strength. And that's the right perspective. The power to fight and overcome sin is found in Christ's death and resurrection. Sinful desires might still be incredibly strong, and we might feel powerless to resist, which is in a sense is true in ourselves. Christ's sacrifice is more powerful than our old self. Christ's death has dealt a death blow to our old nature so that we can serve God instead of sin. Brings us to our last point. Now, in our third and final point, we'll look at perhaps the most uh, glorious effect of Jesus' death. Christ's crucifixion ensures our entrance into eternal life. And what a transformation this is brought about uh, through the death of Christ. And this is where the, the power of the cross. I think shines the brightest. Death is an enemy, also for believers yet, it's still an enemy. Death is an unnatural intrusion into the world. It separates a person's soul from his or her body. Uh, And death means also finality, as Hebrews 9 verse 27 uh, says so starkly, it's appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Right? So, no second chances. And finally, death is, is God's punishment upon a sinful world. Remember the words I quoted earlier, the wages of sin is death. And given this is the case, it's no wonder Lord's Day 16 asks the following question, since Christ has died for us, well, why do we still have to die? Does that mean that we still have to bear the punishment for our sins? Good question. Does the cross of Christ lack power in some way? Well, the answer the catechism gives is simply beautiful. Our death as believers. It's not a payment for our sin, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. And this answer of the catechism, it matches the teaching and the logic of Scripture. Consider Hebrews 9 again. Verse 12 says, Christ secured an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. That means he has forever purchased believers for himself. Forever bought them. Never to let them go. And he has ransomed us from sin and death for all eternity. 
an eternal redemption. In verse 24, Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's where Christ is right now, in heaven uh, for us. And so he will also take us with him into heaven at the end of our lives. Take us to be with him uh, there. Verse 26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's put away our sins. It no longer stands as a barrier between us and coming into the presence of God. The reason we were barred from paradise, removed from paradise, has been removed by Christ. Finally, there's verse 27. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ bore our sins. He removed them from us. He put them on his own shoulders. He paid for them in full. There's nothing we need to do to fill out the rest of the payment. It has been made. And so just as we can eagerly wait Christ's second return, when he will bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him, we can also look forward to an entrance into eternal life when we die as God's children. And how wonderful this is, especially compared to where we were going, the alternative. No, beloved, the torments of hell, they are real. They are extremely sobering and, and scary. See, sin against the highest good, the Lord God, also deserves the highest punishment. If you think again of the sacrifices in Leviticus 4, they give a picture of the suffering in store for sinners who don't have a Savior. But through Christ's death, we confess what we do at the end of Lord's Day 16. Why is there added, He descended into hell, and my greatest sorrows and temptations. I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. And that is the transforming power of Christ's death. Transforms our eternal future. The torments of hell have been replaced with the delights of heaven for you who believe. So see and believe the power of Christ's death for your salvation and praise and serve your Lord. Amen.